0: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have been thinking a lot about what I might put in my break in case of time travel bag.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and for the record, I do not want to go back in time to the Pale of Settlement circa 1816.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of politics. And, you know, just lenses, I guess, just plain old lenses. Today, we're going to be talking about Olivia Butler's Kindred. And I think um, Dan and I—I I don't know what your experience was with this book, Dan, but it was not what I really expected. <laughs> and I, but I loved it. I really did. That is
1: literally, I think, the only theory. time I will laugh during this podcast. I guess would be. Yeah. Way to
0: put it. <laughs> no, you're going to laugh some more because we're okay. going to laugh at just how like what a downer it is. Yes. Yes. We're going to be doing next <laughs> if you <laughs> ah. You know, if you just want some more light escapism, <laughs> we're going to be doing Children of Men, the movie, then we're going to be doing the book, The Power, and then we're going to be doing for Schlock or Awe, uh, the pilot of Fantasy Island. Mm-hmm. If you want access to these episodes early, just go to patreon.com slash space the nation and become an all access member. All access members get shows early. All patrons get to go to our AMAs and become members of our Discord channel. Uh, which is becoming like its own little community. It is quite cool. It is h- happening without me or Dan doing anything. Just a bunch of really smart people chatting about s- mostly science fiction. <laughs> yeah. But not only. <laughs> yeah. And you will also have access to our special patrons-only episode, which we are doing to celebrate having broken 100 patrons. Well, that sounds, that sounds bad, Dan. I mean, I guess...
1: We didn't break them. them. We've attracted attracted more than 100 patrons. We've attracted them. I mean,
0: some of the stuff we do is dark enough. It could break someone. That's true. But (laughs) speaking of uplifting movies, Dan, would you like to tell the people what we're doing right now?
1: By popular patron vote, because we put this to the patrons, they have chosen, 28 Days Later, the Danny Boyle film that, it would be safe to say, revitalized the zombie genre. Although, interestingly enough, Danny Boyle didn't think of it as a zombie movie. So we will be recording that soon. And hey, who knows, maybe when we hit 250, we will record another one. But in the meantime, we have to get to why we have chosen uh, Kindred. Because, as Anna said, this is a podcast, Space the Nation, that is presumably deals with the politics of science fiction, particularly the international relations of science fiction, and one could argue there is not a lot... (laughs) of either science fiction or international relations in this book. Um, So it is worth asking uh, why we are doing this. My joke answer was because with the pandemic lifting, you know, I was feeling too upbeat. And so this book was going to, you know, sort of level my mood. But I actually think there are more serious reasons for choosing a work by Octavia Butler. Would that be the safe thing to say, Anna? We've
0: been joking about how dark this book is. But I do want to say, if you don't want to, think about slavery today, um, if you would prefer not to, for whatever reason, then you're going to have to skip this podcast for the day. Because this is a book that is just an exploration of slavery. Mm -hmm. The idea of it, um, the lived experience of it, the way we define it, all of those things. And, you know, in that way, it actually really fits in with one of the missions of the show, which to me is to elevate other voices beyond the straight white guys who dominate science fiction.
1: Who have um, in the past dominated science fiction.
0: Who have in the past dominated science fiction. And it's funny, though, this coming after Starship Troopers, it is, <laughs> as someone pointed out in the Discord, almost like the diametrically opposed, <laughs> karmically balanced piece of literature to Starship Troopers. So like, it's... <laughs> I won't lie, when opposite. Anna and I were, were <laughs> scheduling
1: all of this, we, we both like Starship Troopers and I enjoyed it immensely, but I also felt good knowing that after that we would then respond with this book.
0: Yes, and, and I will be clear, as I said, I, this book turned out to be a bit of a surprise. I just saw Civil War era <laughs> in the write-up and was like, well, there must be some kind of politics in this. And there, there, are. Is, yes. there is actually kind of a lot of politics, politics you know, as, as a lived thing. And I don't know, if Dan, if you want to say anything more about why we might have chosen this or why, it, if you want to retcon
1: our choice. No, I think actually the, the better way to do this is to, for you, Anna, to, to take us to the story behind the story, because I think in some ways that also explains why we wanted to, uh, to choose at yeah. least something by Octavia Butler.
0: Yes. So Octavia Butler, if you don't already know who she is, she is considered basically the mother of Afrofuturism. And yes, black people wrote science fiction before Octavia Butler. She wrote a lot of it, and also she very consciously put in themes of black liberation, black power, uh, the struggle against white supremacy, like those things, are in her books. She became a science fiction writer in part as a response to the whiteness of the genre. Mm-hmm. Like she has, she does wonderful interviews. By the way, I highly suggest going back and looking at her interviews. But one of the things she says that she is that she wrote herself into the story. That she read all these science fiction books and, and, and stories. She was a voracious reader of them, and she didn't see herself. So. She wrote some books where she could see herself, and I, I actually think that this book, in some ways, might be her most autobiographical. Uh, the character of Dana has some things in common with her, right. <laughs> among uh, among other things. She is um, portrayed as being a someone who wants to be a writer, very determined to be a writer, mm-hmm. and is kind of supporting herself with all these like weird jobs, which she at some point calls slavery at the beginning of the book. Yeah. And I believe, of course, that's a conscious choice on Mm -hmm. her part, because for Dana, she didn't. Yeah. She thought that. Right. (laughs) Dana thought that. And then the other thing is sort of a general comment. Octavia Butler is that she's very interested in black bodies, like she writes a lot of stuff about fertility,
1: Hmm.
0: um, about ancestry, about like the work that bodies do. And Kindred is all that. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, and it was, it is, you know, she, she wrote generally as a response to the whiteness of science fiction, this particular book came out of uh, something she heard while she was at, I believe, Pasadena College, and was active in the you know, black power student movement. And she heard someone speak, who said that he felt ashamed of the previous generation's behavior,
1: right, that they had not fought somehow not fought harder or that they had not like rebelled sufficiently.
0: Yeah. And apparently she sat with that for 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) She remembered it. She said it would that she says in an interview that 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 idea kind of haunted her for a long time because her understanding is that people do what they have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And so she set out to write a book that would take someone who might have thoughts like this person did that she heard speak. And what would that person see? if they actually had to have the experience. I think it's important to say she did a ton of research, went to Maryland, went to the libraries down there, did tours of plantations down there and read a lot of slave narratives. And she's um, on record as saying that she actually toned down the portrayals of violence from what she read in the slave narratives.
1: I can completely believe that, yes. Yeah. One of the things I found fascinating about this book was that the the choice of where the slavery takes place is not something that I think I would have expected when I first like in other words I I knew the book was about slavery obviously but I wasn't expecting it to be in Maryland because that's (laughs) not something that you know you don't think of Maryland as a slave state uh, among other things and so it was fascinating to and I actually think that was a wise choice because it it implicates a lot more Americans perhaps than you otherwise would have uh, would have done if they had been set place in Mississippi or, or Alabama or what have you
0: Yes, it shows sort of both how slavery can be different in different places and how it's all always exactly the same. Yes. And, and we should stop talking around it. We need to get to the plot, Dan. Uh, could you could you tell us about Act
1: One? I will be happy to. Um, so, Act One, The River and the Fire. Uh, the, the chapters in this book are all titled with essentially things that trigger... The events in the the book. So let us meet Dana. Dana is an African-American writer uh, living in Los Angeles in 1976, uh, and she is celebrating her 26th birthday. She is unpacking books with her husband Kevin because they've just moved into a place when she suddenly feels dizzy and then finds herself near a river with a drowning child named Rufus. Dana rescues the boy and successfully performs CPR to revive him, even though the boy's mother protests and sort of curiously attacks her for all this. The boy survives, but then the boy's father uh, approaches and points his gun directly at Dana. At that point, Dana passes out again and finds herself back in her apartment, drenched from her experience in the river. Her clothes are completely wet. Kevin explains that maybe she disappeared for at most a second or two. Dana washes herself off, uh, but gets dizzy again, and then finds herself in a bedroom with Rufus, which is the same boy, but now a few years older. Rufus Whalen is the boy's name, has set fire to his window drapes. Rufus's casual use of the N-word makes her realize that she is not only in a different place, but also in a different time, namely Maryland, uh, 1816. Dana also realizes that Rufus may very well be one of her ancestors, because in her family Bible, there is a family tree, and among other things, Rufus is apparently you know, potentially her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who apparently helped birth the son with her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, Alice. Dana, realizing how she's dressed and how vulnerable she obviously is, given the time and place, um, asks for Rufus's help. Rufus helps sneak her out of the manor house and directs her to the house of Alice Greenwood and her mother. There, Dana witnesses a patrol of white men whip a black man and beat up Alice's mother. Dana helps uh, Alice's mother, but in the process is grabbed by a returning patroller and then beaten up. She passes out and awakes to find herself in Los Angeles again. Dana deduces from this experience that she basically transports back to Maryland circa early 1800s whenever Rufus feels like he is in mortal danger and needs help. She then returns when she fears for her own life. Anna, the thing that I found most fascinating about these early sections of the book was how as Dana acquired more knowledge, she lost power. It is interesting that in the very first time she gets snatched back, she's not aware of what time it is. She's simply acting without thinking and uh, therefore is in no way intimidated by anyone else, which actually, I think, sort of wrongfoots the other people and and puts them Mm -hmm. in something in defense. The more she understands her predicament, the more scared, understandably, she becomes.
0: Yes, this is the beginning of her very long answer and belated answer to her comrade back in Pasadena. Right. And she's showing us, not telling us, Mm -hmm. showing us how fitting into the institution of slavery is what you need to do to survive. And in some ways, you have to willingly give up some of your autonomy,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: if that makes sense, in order to just live right right it's interesting that she puts her in pants i mean i assume that's a that's a choice too right yeah because you know butler is showing us all these different ways that if you behave like a black person might behave in 1976 back then like you would be shot
1: <laughs> or whipped or like yeah, that, you, yeah yes you're brutalized in one way or another absolutely
0: right and just acting that way Yeah. i also want to say i really appreciated the kind of sneaky way that she revealed that kevin is white like i i thought that was cool yeah you know she caught me too
1: right no i wasn't expecting that i
0: totally assumed that her husband would be black yes same and i think that's really sneaky and smart (laughs) and obviously it helps make the book right like yeah
1: it's i think it's necessary for the book to for the rest of the book to take place obviously but yeah
0: yeah and here is where i will say i meant to say this up at the top is that i think both Dan and I understand that we are Kevins in in talking about this book. Right. And I I think it's okay for us to talk about it, obviously, but there is a a limit to our understanding, you know? And in some ways, that book, in the portrayal of Kevin, (laughs) illustrates that.
1: I guess, but I... It's not that I disagree with that, but I would actually argue that weirdly the book also – in answering that question, the book is, is subtly suggesting that everyone living now might not entirely appreciate – that we are Kevins now, but that everyone is a Kevin when they go back in some ways. or that, that That's
0: an interesting way to look at it, and it might be what she actually meant. But yeah. I also just feel necessary to say that like – well, even – but Kevin can't understand. But even back then, Kevin can't understand the amount of privilege he has. Right. Yeah. Even as even when he knows that she is being treated as a slave, yeah. he doesn't quite get the difference between them. Yeah. She has to explain it
1: to him like multiple times. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> what she can and can't do. Right. You know? Yeah. So let's move on though.
1: Okay. Uh, After two disapparations, Kevin basically decides to pack a temporal go-bag full of supplies and insists that Dana keep it close just in case uh, something happens. And sure enough, just a day or two after Dana has returned, she starts feeling dizzy again. And this time, Kevin holds on to her and is therefore also transported back in time. They are now, uh, again, back in Maryland, but it's 1819. And Rufus has gone and broken his leg from apparently falling down from a tree. They send Rufus's black friend, Nigel, uh, back to the Whalen. house house for help rufus is surprised to learn that dana is married to a white man kevin and even more surprised to learn that they are from 157 years in the future rufus does promise to keep quiet about all of this however dana suggests that kevin uh, pretend to be her owner when rufus's parents arrive because that actually makes sense given the time and place uh, and that subterfuge seems to work tom wayland who is rufus's father invites them to stay at his manor Tom asks Kevin to help tutor Rufus in reading and writing, neither of which Rufus is terribly good at, and he agrees. Dana continues to act like Kevin's enslaved person, though eventually she moves into his room and sleeps there, as no one apparently but Tom's mother Margaret seems to mind this, and Margaret seems to mind this mostly because she is apparently the hots for Kevin. Dana interacts with uh, the other house slaves, including Sarah the cook, as well as Sarah's mute daughter, Carrie. Carrie. Rufus asks Dana uh, to read to her as well. Dana agrees, hoping to enlighten the boy before he becomes as cruel as his father, Tom. The father assents to this, but tells her not to read anywhere else. Dana also starts to teach uh, Carrie and Nigel how to read. In the cookhouse one evening, Tom catches her doing this and starts whipping her. At this point, she faints and reappears in 1976. But because she is alone, Kevin is marooned back in 1819 Maryland. Mm Anna, I think the most disturbing part of this section of the book was just how easily Kevin and Dana fit into their roles. I was not expecting that and and it they're acting in a rational way, but like I was expecting a little more like emotional trauma as a result of that.
0: Yes. I think that's a little bit the point of the book, yeah. Dan.
1: Yeah, I know. But also
0: it's something that uh, Butler's interested in, like over her career. She talks about something called the human contradiction in mm-hmm. uh, interviews sometimes, which is that humans have a lot of happy talk about freedom
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and autonomy, but that we seem to also have an instinct towards hierarchy. I'll just point out that it. it in some ways this makes sense, because I think our instinct towards hierarchy is especially strong when we are fearful. Yeah, and so I think that that's one of the reasons why they fit into their roles. You know, like it's not something she says explicitly. I'm just kind of reading into it, but I think it's true that humans adapt under pressure. No, right? it,
1: it. Look, we're just coming out of an experience in which all of us had had to adapt rather significantly mm-hmm. to some extraordinary circumstances, and. I, I wrote a column about this I think back in February where one of the appalling things about human beings sometimes is our adaptability. That mm-hmm. it's necessary for us to survive, but in order to adapt, sometimes we live with or tolerate things that in the abstract, or even if you had asked us before, would be horrifying to us. And so I think in some ways that it was reading that part that was profoundly disturbing, which is it is obviously intended to be.
0: I also will point out that I think this is where we start to really see Butler try to shade her characters, that the good people are not always good Mm -hmm. and the bad people have, I'm not going to call them redeeming qualities, (laughs) but that, you know, things are complicated. And she has said in her interviews that she doesn't write about good and evil. And I think it's really, I just want to comment on the audacity (laughs) of someone Setting out to write a book about slavery where she thinks she's not writing about good
1: and evil. No, it's a, like, it's a novel about the situation.
0: <laughs> yeah, And she pulls it off. Yes, you know? Oh yeah. And she was an audacious person. If you again, she, she's really interesting. One of the things I, I wanted to make sure we get in is that among writerly types, she's kind of famous for um, at one point, early in her career, she wrote on the inside cover of a notebook. I will be a best-selling author. I will be my books will be on the bestseller lists of the New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post. She kind of goes on like that, mm-hmm. and guess what? <laughs> well done. <laughs> so she she had some audacious goals, and again, I I feel like Dana is is definitely like an echo. Yeah.
1: At her yeah she so. didn't have to make the characters writers they could have been something else and it was it was interesting that that was the choice that, that she made um, right now moving on. Yes, we go to Act Three, the fight. Dana is back in 1976, Los Angeles. Uh, in flashbacks, we learn how Dana and Kevin met, basically as temp workers, which you know, but bonded as aspiring writers and also orphans working uh, in an auto parts store. Kevin has had more success getting published. They decide to marry, uh, but interestingly, neither his sister nor her aunt and uncle approve of this uh, miscagenation. Dana recuperates and repacks her temporal go bag for the next time she disapparates. That happens eight days later, and she finds herself in 1824, Maryland, saving a tipsy, fully grown Rufus from an angry runaway slave named Isaac beating the living crap out of him. They are fighting uh, over Alice. Rufus loves her, but she's married to Isaac. Uh, Rufus has grown up to be, well, let's just say a bit of an asshole. Dana tells Isaac and Alice to run and makes Rufus swear not to rat them out. They return to the manor where Dana learns that uh, Kevin had set off north a few years earlier but had promised to return periodically. Dana nurses Rufus back to health uh, with the help of some modern meds that she had packed in her go bag in return for his promise to mail a letter to Kevin so Kevin would return from Boston or Maine or wherever he was to... See her again. Alice and Isaac are unfortunately captured a few days later. Isaac is sold off and Alice is beaten to a pulp. Rufus buys Alice and asks Dana to nurse her back to health as well. As Alice recovers, Rufus wants her very much uh, to be with him. It would be safe to say Alice does not want that. Uh, She wants to be with Isaac. Rufus basically tells Dana to persuade Alice to voluntarily share his bed because the other options will be even worse for Alice, the other options being selling Alice beating Alice or raping Alice. Dana decides to talk to Alice and she chooses to relent. And in some ways, this was actually, I think, the key portion of the book for me. Um, Because as awful as it is, Rufus actually does paint a very simple strategic choice to Dana and Alice, and then they take the, the optimal choice.
0: Yeah, this is a really intense part of the book. Um... I think she probably I mean obviously thought a lot about what we might call the Thomas Jefferson problem right it's interesting that Rubis has red hair huh (laughs) Um, and what we might think of the enslaved women who had sex with the people that owned them
1: who quasi voluntarily had sex
0: yeah Yeah. quasi voluntarily had sex with those those men I think it's really interesting. Dana continually says, I can't make this decision for you. And in some ways, this is like a, a real pivotal point in the book to talk about how do we find autonomy in these situations where it seems like we have no choices. Right. And I think the choice that Alice makes, I mean, I think they're all valid choices. And what I think Butler really wants us to understand is that she did make a choice. They were all choices.
1: Right, because she will make a different choice later. And and mm-hmm. there is an argument to be made for making this choice. It's very clear that Alice in making this choice has a better life. Because one of the things that I think Butler does extremely well is sort of explain the hierarchy, not just of the plantation between the whites and the African-Americans, but also within the enslaved population, that there are clearly mm-hmm. house slaves and then there are field slaves. And it is clearly much, 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 much better to be a house slave for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. And in doing this, Alice gets that privilege, as it were.
0: And then I also wanted to say, I think um, you you used the phrase, Rufus wants her to be with him. And I think that's the right phrasing, the right description, yeah. um, because I love does not come into this i think um or or, or it's it's the kind of love that does not sure doesn't feel like love um it's if you believe it's i mean because it can you love a person that you're willing to whip
1: i mean it's look it would be or that you're willing to rape it's safe to say it's an abusive relationship i mean that's that that goes without saying um
0: it's a good question. Actually, like, I, I'm just saying it's a good question, really, because what does Rufus understand of
1: love? I think. I, leave it this way. I, the impression I got, and I am willing to be corrected on this, was the the impression I got is that Rufus genuinely does want Alice to want him. What I think, w- where where Rufus's position as a slave owner alters his thinking. Is that as a slave owner, he thinks, if she doesn't want me now, all I have to do is apply more pressure, and then she will want me. Yeah. Which is not how love works. It's how power works. And and there's... Let me just say, I think she, this
0: is an intentionally, you know, gray area for Butler. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, spoiler alert, how Rufus manages to transfer his affections, you know, to yeah. Dana.
1: Well, I, I also think one of the subtly at least for me, one of the most subtly disturbing aspects of this book is how Rufus matures, and I hate to even use that word, because clearly one of the premises going in, and it's not a bad strategy by Dana, is that when Dana is interacting with Rufus as a child, Dana thinks, if I educate him, if I show him some different ways of thinking, maybe Rufus will not grow up to be as, you know, violent or as cruel as his father, Tom. And that turns out to be an utter failure.
0: Yeah, and that's that is a, an example of her trying to apply modern thinking right. to this context, right? Like, I'm sure that's something also that you and I might think. Yeah, you know, it's it's an assumption that that anyone living in a modern time could make is, oh, I'll go back and I'll right. I'll just apply this modern thinking, right. and it will change everything. And sure enough, you know, it doesn't. He becomes more loathsome as the book.
1: Yeah, no, it's on. it's profoundly disturbing because I was like. And again, as the modern reader, as as, as a Kevin reading, I thought, yes, that's exactly what I would do. And of course, it doesn't, as I'm about to tell Mm -hmm. you, it doesn't really work out. So Alice finds out uh, that Rufus had lied about mailing Dana's letter to Kevin. Dana tries to escape, but Tom and Rufus capture her and have her whipped. Tom finds out about his son's promise to mail the letter to Kevin, and orders him to do so, in fact. Kevin finally shows up when the Waylands are away, takes Dana, and they start to head north. They then cross paths with Rufus on the road, who does not want Dana to leave. Uh, She goads Rufus into aiming his flintlock at her, at which point both she and Kevin then manage to disapparate again back to 1976. Anna, there is a lot of bleak stuff in this section about life as an enslaved person. But as I said before, I think the most sobering part of it is the truly cold, rational calculations made by Rufus, Dana, and Alice.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like I'm going to be repeating myself a lot about this, but this idea of finding autonomy in, in what seems like a hopeless situation and in, in finding, I don't quite want to use the word empowerment, but in elevating, let's say, these people... Mm-hmm. Who lived in a past that we cannot understand, you know, and, and you know what we've we, we we mentioned that the reason Dana's doing this is because Rufus is her great 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 whatever
1: great, right. great and sort of needs Rufus to live in order presumably for her right. To live. it's, she, yes, it's
0: to actually say. the the Back to the Future yes
1: problem yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Little known fact that Back to the Future partially based on Kindred. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, God. I told you we'd laugh it. There we go. Yes, thank uh, um, you. I appreciate that. It's not much of a metaphor, really, right? Like that—that mm-hmm. that survival depends on adaptation. Yeah. That—that that she cannot be born unless the people who were enduring slavery made the choices that they did. And I think that that's. I really. I just.
1: Right, and also I, think I don't. I don't. I. I just like, realized. I don't know if I said this explicitly, but Rufus and Alice have to procreate in order for. Yes dana to exist they're yes. supposed to have a child named hagar in some ways when dana is talking to alice she has her own self-preservation in the back of her mind as she's doing it
0: oh even i would say not even yeah. in the back yeah, yeah. like she's like she's like i i need to be born right. so i yeah. gotta make this happen right. although i'll just say this now i was gonna mention it later i kind of appreciate the lack of like much attention to the why's and how's
1: <laughs> yes for a science for again nominally this is a science fiction book with very little science fiction in it like, like like there's no almost none of that stuff in it which you know
0: there's there's like no real questioning yeah. of like how it would happen right. that she would disappear of the like the time ta- the alternate timeline that might exist or whatever right. it's just kind of like eh, they don't have a baby that i don't won't exist let's just move the plot along. exactly you know? yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I think that Alice is an amazing character, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, she won my heart yeah. at, at, in a way that some of the other characters didn't. In
1: some ways, I actually think she might be the most complex character, or at least her behavior is the most complex, yes. because yes, she... Yeah, and, and the other th- one of the, the most fascinating dynamics, and, and Butler is explicit about this through Dana, is that Alice basically rags on Dana constantly. Like, she is mm-hmm. incredibly negative towards Dana, because Dana gets all of these various privileges as a similar sort of house slave. And the other enslaved people are like, how can you do that? And it's understandable why Dana, oh, racked with guilt, allows neat,
0: this. In a neat twist, yeah. they consider her to be too servile.
1: Yes, exactly. That she's too good at <laughs> pretending to be, you know, or she's too good at fitting in, as it were.
0: And the other thing is... And she's, she's, she's acting out the thing that her Pasadena comrade... Said that he was so mad about right,
1: exactly right, and the other thing is, is that to Alice's credit, I think Alice is aware that like she's angry at Dana, and yet she also realizes she really has no cause to be angry at Dana, or yeah. you know, and and yeah. so it's again an extremely jumbled set of emotions.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, now last last minute. Yes,
1: Act Four: The Storm and the Rope. Uh, Kevin and Dana are back in Los Angeles. It is safe to say that Kevin is suffering from PTSD. Mm-hmm. Dana barely has time to repack her bag with supplies again when she winks back to Maryland. Six years have passed since. This time, Rufus is lying face-down drunk in a rain puddle near the house. They get him into his room, and a very aged Tom asks Dana to nurse him back to health. Dana learns that Rufus has been sick with malaria and might have other ailments. He recovers, but much more slowly this time. In the interim, Dana learns that Rufus and Alice have had three children. Only one has survived. None of them are named Hagar, and therefore none of them are Dana's ancestor. Tom Whalen dies of a heart attack And Dana cannot revive him Because that's not how medicine works As punishment, Rufus sends Dana To work in the fields And this does not go well After that, Rufus brings Dana Back to the big house He also sells some of his uh, slaves To pay off his father's debts Infuriating Dana Rufus asks for her to help in correspondence with creditors, which ironically is the thing that she had refused to do for Kevin back in the 1970s when they first met. Dana also teaches Alice and Rufus' surviving child, Joe, how to read and write. Carrie urges Dana to help keep Rufus alive because otherwise the plantation would be broken up and the slave families would be torn apart. An uneasy status quo emerges with basically everyone resenting everyone else. When a field hand takes a liking to Dana, Rufus sells him. Dana protests, and Rufus hits her for the first time. She pours herself a bath and then slits her wrists, waking up back in L.A. with Kevin. Dana manages to stay in L.A. for 15 days this time. Uh, When she returns, she finds that Alice has hung herself. Rufus had punished Alice for an attempted escape, having her whipped, and then telling her, but falsely that she had sold off their children when he had actually had sent them to Baltimore. Rufus is racked with guilt and uh, was going to commit suicide. Dana demands that Rufus bring back the children and emancipate them, which he does do. With Alice dead, however, Rufus keeps Dana close and clearly wants her to be Alice's replacement in every possible way. She flees to the attic to get the knife from her go bag. Rufus follows her and grabs her arm. She then stabs him twice. As he's dying, she returns to LA for good, but loses part of her left arm from where Rufus was holding her, because when she re-apparates, basically that part of the arm is in the wall, and so she has to wrench herself free. Anna, there are a lot of disturbing elements of this book. (laughs) Just a whole lot of them. Really, I could go on for like hours. But I do think the evolution of Rufus's feelings toward Dana is, for me at least, really high up on the list. Was this true for you as well?
0: Yeah, this gets back to the question of whether or not what Rufus is feeling is love Hmm. for me. And I, I also think that Rufus... Makes me wonder if this is one place where Butler does not quite succeed in having someone be neither good nor evil. Yeah. <laughs> because I really hated him. Like, I, more than I hated Tom Whalen.
1: He was worse than Tom Whalen. I mean, like, my, yeah. my take on Tom was was that, it, again, it, again, we were all talking about degrees here. Tom was cruel in a variety of ways. But Tom weirdly had a sense of honor that I actually think he did extend to... His slaves. You know, when he found out that Rufus had made the promise to send the letter to Kevin, mm-hmm. he made him send the letter to Kevin. That was the honorable thing to do. He thought
0: it was stupid to do. He thought
1: it was stupid, <laughs> but he said, once you make the promise, you have to do it. And so, you know. Yeah. And he treated Dana oddly. I, in some ways, it was almost like as the novel progressed, Tom treated Dana better and Rufus treated Dana worse.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And I also think that Rufus highlights the emotional abuse that is involved in slavery. Mm-hmm. That I, I don't want to say it's just as bad or because the depiction of whipping by the way in this book is probably one of the most disturbing things I've read in a while if she was going light <laughs> yeah there then I, and she might she might well have been mm-hmm. but what Rufus does is emotionally manipulate the women basically also the men yeah but the women too but um, primarily to, to the control women. them yeah, yeah and he's cruel in that manipulation in a way that yeah tom wyland's cruelty is at least um obvious right and transactional in a very like i you do this i do that right like it's it's it's, it's like here are the rules fair. if you yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but there's a, a kind of like um business sense to it that sounds terrible but i'm sure that's how tom wayland felt about it you know it is dangerous to try and create a hierarchy of cruelty But um, the cruelty that Rufus's father displays is is cold um, and it's detached. It's detached, and Rufus's cruelty is intimate.
1: Yeah, and personal. No, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah,
0: and so yeah, I really, really hated him. You know,
1: which is interesting because it it might also have been the name main characters because we know that Tom engaged in similar kinds of exercises with enslaved women Mm -hmm. uh, under. Him, but and in fact, did actually sell one off, right? Like, didn't?
0: Yep. But, but yep. again, like, the, even the even the, the women who who talk about this are like, he's making a profit. Like, he sold right. my kids because they're going to be good workers, and he didn't yeah. sell Carrie because she's right. unable to speak, right? Yeah. So. It was quite an end <laughs> to the yes. book, I have to
1: say. <laughs> it was a very, like, I. It, it was, like, for the fact that, like, you know, and I think Butler said this in an interview, that basically the fact that she loses her arm is the, the obvious implication there, the symbolism there, is that you cannot experience this and come away whole. Nah. Um, and so she literally cannot come away whole from this experience, which I think is entirely appropriate. And I would add also, this isn't talked about as much, but, like, not even Kevin comes away whole. Mm-mm. Kevin is scarred both physically and emotionally. And there was like just a brief thing where I think Dana's cousin visits during one of the interludes and says, what the hell happened to Kevin? He looks like, like 20 years older, basically, even though he'd only aged five or something. And I actually appreciated that as one of the Kevins reading this book, <laughs> but, but pointing out that this cruelty affects everyone.
0: And it does. It does. Like white yeah. supremacy is bad <laughs> yeah. but one but it's of the reasons also it's bad is because it it denigrates everyone you
1: yes they exactly.
0: there again hierarchy is dangerous but and one could say white people obviously suffer less but it it, it does but dehumanize. they still suffer it well no i would say it dehumanizes you know? dehumanize.
1: yeah that's fair yes, dehumanizes
0: yes. and suffer is not quite the right word i want to use But I think it is no one gets off without losing some of themselves. Like, I think that that is that is indeed or becoming scarred. And and no, that is the perfect
1: way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and Butler shows us that again. She's a good writer. This is like one of those things where like when reading this book, I can think of like, (laughs) you know, like Lovecraft, who was not a great writer, you know, like. And she just shows, 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 shows. It's amazing. Like
1: you- no, this the the so, so Here's a good question on it. When was like the what was the first thing, first sentence you read in this book where you're like, holy crap, like that was oh, a sentence. Wow. Like it was just because like for me it was when it's it's early in the book. It's when um, I think her second time back when she is very close to the person that is being whipped, and she says, "I could smell his sweat." And, like, that was one of those things where I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, that was just a beautiful, beautiful is not exactly the right word, but, like, like it was very good writing.
0: Oh, he, actually, you know, one of the things I underlined is addresses exactly what we're talking about. Talking with yeah. Kevin, but he'd be in another kind of danger. A place like this would endanger him in a way I didn't want to talk about to him. If yes. he was stranded here for years, some part of this place would rub off on him. No large part, I knew. But if he survived here, it would be because he managed to tolerate the life here. And that is a preview, it turns out. Yeah. Um, but her understanding is pretty great. And I guess, you know, I just liked it so much. I'm hard having a hard time finding like the parts that really gutted me. Some of the parts that gutted me weren't the necessarily the beautiful writing though again her writing some even the parts that aren't like especially lyrical she is doing right. nothing but showing
1: she no is, that's what i mean like yeah. saying i smelled his i smelled his sweat that's not a lyrical sentence it is an yeah. incredibly effective sentence right.
0: though and i'll also say one of the other things that gutted me was the mm-hmm. scene where they happen upon the black children the children of the plantation playing slave auction
1: yeah no, I th-
0: I have no doubt is based on she must I bet she found something about that. Yeah. Like I, I don't think she would make that shit up.
1: I think weirdly the most gutting portion for me is also it, there there are two pivotal for me moments in this book it you know in terms of thinking about it in the form of power, which is the first is when Rufus basically ...puts the bargain to Dana of, look, you've got to tell Alice these are her choices, and and as awful as they are, Alice makes her choice. The other time is when Carrie has to explain to Dana that you need to make sure Rufus stays alive, that as awful as being enslaved is, the alternative if Rufus were to die would be actually worse. And that is, the, is literally showing, not telling, because Carrie can't speak. And so Carrie has to sort of explain, you know, the best way that, that she can, that that's what's going on. And, and it, it, was a, it was a very powerful moment because it makes you realize that as awful as this entire situation is, there are things that are even more awful.
0: Yeah. So we're going to move on, <laughs> Dan. Mm-hmm. And so I have a question.
1: Yes, fire away on Is there IR in this book? Um <laughs> Anna it so maybe a little. I'm gonna try to squeeze some IR out of this book. I think you can. And and by the way, this is one of these things where occasionally, you know, we talk about international relations. International relations is a subfield of politics. Yes. And I, would, I want to be very clear. Is there politics in this book? There is a lot of politics in this book. That is really interesting. Is there international relations in this book? That's where it gets a little more narrowly circumscribed. But in some ways it, it gets related somewhat, which is international relations. Most of international relations theory tends to make the assumption of of what we call anarchy, which means that there is no central government. There are multiple actors out there operating in a world without, you know, any sort of central coercive authority. That is not what is going on in this book. This book is entirely about hierarchy. It is about the hierarchy of, you know, the Whelan house, basically, and where you fit in that hierarchy and the choices you have to make in order to be able to survive in that hierarchy, uh, regardless of where you are. And that even within the enslaved population, There is a hierarchy as well, and that you definitely do not want to be working in the fields if you can all avoid it. And to do that, you have to make choices that can make you be resented by others. Mm -hmm. That said, international relations research recently has begun starting to talk about how the international system is not entirely anarchic, that there is hierarchy. In international relations, that um, there are past structures, things like empires that are clearly very explicit hierarchies. Or if you think about U.S. hegemony more generally, you know there are more informal sort of hierarchies there. And the book does speak to that a little mm-hmm. bit, that, that basically less powerful actors have more circumscribed choices, but they do have choices that they make. And sometimes that sh- those choices can include things like resistance, which raises the cost for A variety of actors involved And the less powerful actor Will usually not win out But that is still A conscious choice Um, And that there's A conscious choice To self-destruct Yes Yes No And in some ways If you really want to Go there. This goes back to the Melian Dialogue um, in the history of the Peloponnesian War, which is Thucydides basically presents the Athenians and the Melians. The Athenians are much, much, much more powerful. They explain to the Melians that they should completely, uh, you know, unconditionally surrender. The Melians don't want to do this, and they come up with all these various reasons why they shouldn't. And the Athenians just don't care. They're like, <laughs> look, you can choose to resist. We're going to win anyway. The question is, are you going to are you going to resist, and then all you pe- these people die, or are you going to re- Surrender and only the men will die. And they choose to resist. Um, and that is a choice. And it ends badly for them, but they actually, that choice is made. The other thing that I think Butler's book brings up is the ways in which there are uncomfortable issues that don't necessarily fit easy categorizations in world politics. And there is a way in which, you know, obviously the, this a lot of this book is about how the white slave owners would obviously you know, take their enslaved women and procreate with them. There are questions in terms of, you know, laws of war involving things like rape and so forth, where children born because of rape during war are genuinely awkward questions. And a lot of human rights activists don't necessarily want to talk about these things. Uh, there's a researcher, Charlie Carpenter, who's written uh, multiple books on this. It's a really interesting topic.
0: I'm curious. Uh, yeah. Say, say a little more about that. Yeah. Um...
1: Basically the problem is is that the the those who are raped and then have the children and choose to raise the children are often ostracized by right. the communities yes. that they are in and so this is a very complicated issue because of course bad things happen to them but bad things happen to the larger population and it's very diff- it's one of those awkward things in terms of generating re- reconciliation and a lot of the major human rights NGOs don't want to tackle this issue because it complicates a lot of narratives and it doesn't necessarily endear themselves to populations that have larger human rights problems that they are coping with and so again much in the way that that butler i think is raising a lot of awkward issues with respect to slavery, which is it's awful in a variety of ways, but then you wind up with these weird situations where tolerating certain things might be the better choice. Much in the same way as is, is what's going on now.
0: Just to show that I read books too, I feel like <laughs> I want to bring up something I read recently, which is um, Martha Minow. Is that how you say her last name? Minow. M I N O W. Yeah. Uh, Martha Minow was actually on my other podcast because of a book she wrote called "When Should the Law Forgive." Which gets into some of these questions of when ugly choices are the only choices you have, right? Like, what should the law do, right? How should yeah. the law recognize that? And the first part of her book is all about child soldiers, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and this is a really uplifting episode of this podcast. Yeah. Well, a really uplifting episode of my podcast too, guys. And you know, it's compli- It's more complicated, I think us white people living in industrialized countries are like oh well the child uh, soldiers that's bad it's bad <laughs> yeah you know and those children should be you know saved and it's mm-hmm. just not that easy like sometimes it's a choice that has been consciously made by yes it's a child you know someone under 18 but they've chosen to do it and how do they get, how do they integrate back into the community? Yes. And how what kind of aid do you give to a community where some of the children were active and some of them weren't? And this yeah, the reintegration and reconciliation questions. And also as the kids get older, if they're in this context, okay, if you want to forgive everyone under eighteen, why eighteen?
1: <laughs> right. The the basic problem is is that it, it is In international politics, you very often want to have bright lines because bright lines allow for clarity. And the problem is is that the real world is incredibly messy and bright lines don't always work. Yeah.
0: Which we could say is a theme of this book, Dan.
1: Yes. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, So I have a couple of themes, but let's get to to you, Anna. I I have a question for you, Anna. Oh,
0: yes. Well, please, Dan. Fire away.
1: Is there a critique of capitalism in this book?
0: (laughs) Dan is trying to keep a straight face, uh, dear <laughs> listeners. This is a book about the literal commodification of labor. <laughs> so, yes. Yes, Dan. Yes, there is. And it is. Okay, I
1: book. want to push you a little bit, though, because like, I, <laughs> so keep going, because I want to, I want to ask a question with the end.
0: Okay. I mean, I don't have much more to say. Like, it's, it, oh, okay. this is, it's the literal, it's what happens, like, when you get literal about the commodification of labor.
1: Right. But I get one of the things that I thought was legitimately interesting in this book is that is that Dana is Dana's description very briefly of what their life was like in L.A. And the fact that, as you said, she jokes about it sort of being an informal slave market by like, Mm -hmm. you know, being working for the temp agency. And I thought maybe this is a this isn't subtext. This is text. But like one of the messages from this book is like. Don't call things virtual slavery.
0: Oh yeah, no, I because agree.
1: they're not the same thing. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes,
0: yes. That's my. I point. agree. That was, and in, yeah, and in yeah. fact, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, like Dan and I had a discussion before we started recording about how to use the term slave, because right. yes, this book makes clear it is very, it is hard to say sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, or it's a, it's such a blanket term. It's such a, it's such a um, black and white term. Oh, uh, that it it doesn't necessarily accurately describe the situation, you know, mm-hmm. and while I have thrown around the term, you know, wage slave in the past, and I have used it perhaps to describe the conditions, you know, of, of low paid workers. Uh, yeah, I think I'm and I've tried to be more careful, especially sort of in the past couple of years. I just feel like this book may have done a lot of work on that for me that. Yeah. And that I will be more careful. And I think that that's the, yeah, that's not, not an accident. It's, it's, it's,
1: um, no, it's the answer to that man. It's it's the answer to the, what the the guy said. And I just, I, I just wanted to point that out. Okay, Anna, I'm hearing some noises. (laughs) Is it, is it time to enter the debris field?
0: Well, there's sort of a big chunk headed towards us. It's not quite debris, maybe, or it's a it's a larger piece of debris. Which is the thing that I kept thinking about with this book. Although I'm not sure, I am not sure the degree to which it was intentional on Butler's part. Is that there has been, especially in the past, I would say four years, six years. Mm this sort of idea that, that black women do a lot of the emotional labor for the country and that black women act as saviors for the country. There right. were some very unfortunate memes that went around. Mm-hmm. I remember the Doug Jones one that was what uh, sort of started to happen where right. well-meaning progressives were like, God, God bless black women for you know <laughs> pulling our asses out of the fire. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways this is a, this, Novel is a reminder that that's not by choice. (laughs) Like (laughs) this is labor that is done because it has to be done. And also that the emotional labor that black women do is not compensated. And because there's a lot of emotional labor that's done by the black women in this book who are enslaved. Yeah. And just to bring it right current up to the moment, black and brown women are way overrepresented in the fields that are a lot about emotional labor, right. like home healthcare aides being the one that I'm really thinking about, and what the, and in the pandemic has brought into you know extreme perspective, you know, really put a spotlight on how those people are not compensated nearly enough. So that was just a big that was like an asteroid, not really debris. Yeah,
1: that was I, that that no, that's a big.
0: But deal. you know what? Now we've got some smaller things. Um, I would say I really like the decision to not explain anything. <laughs> <laughs> I found it surprisingly quick read uh, for something so heavy and so yes. um, dark. And I think this is
1: where Butler not writing in a particularly florid way, like not in a Lovecraftian way, actually yeah, yeah. made it easier to read. Yeah.
0: And I also want to say I would like to know more about the food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, that's true.
1: I, there was, there's like a description of the corn mush, and that's I think that's it. Like yeah. yeah. I'm
0: just curious. Like that's something like I, that's something I'm always interested in. Is like there's actually it's called like gastroanthropology, I think. Oh. Um, where the recreation of the foods of the past, and I just was really interested. And I also feel like she maybe kept that from us because another thing about Octavia Butler, the writer and aspiring writer, she is great to read on writing. She has a yeah. lot of really helpful stuff to say about the act of writing. And one of them is detail, 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 facts, facts, facts,
1: mm-hmm. that
0: you can take a reader somewhere the more richly you can describe, like the actual things, yeah, you know, so. That's interesting. But I still, I, th- I still hear some pinging off of our ship. Dan. There,
1: there's a few things. So, I, so I disagree with you slightly. I was a bit surprised that Butler didn't wrestle with the sci-fi elements of her plot just a bit more. I wouldn't want it to have that much more, but like. The fact that she, that Dana brings back, like, a fair amount from the future, like, drugs and pens and so forth from 1976, she seems pretty cavalier about, like, the implications of, like, people in 1816 or 1824 yeah. knowing about this stuff. And I thought maybe a little more effort, you know,
0: there. And there um, was one part, I just started to interrupt, there's one part where I felt like she might be doing it because it turns out that Rufus really likes ballpoint pens. Yes, and yes. <laughs> And she she comes into his room and she's like, what have you been writing with this? Like half the ink is gone.
1: We never find out, by the way. He
0: never answers. I was
1: going to say, but but also Butler never answers. I was actually. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. No, no. That was like Chekhov's gun. I was like, something's coming from that. Right. And like we never find out. I was I was a little surprised by that. So this does raise an interesting question, Anna, which is we've talked before uh, about go bags, the concept of go bags. Like, you know, if you're fearing for your life or or emergency situation, you need to go. You got to pack something. What would be in your temporal go bag?
0: I think Dana packs pretty smart.
1: Yeah, Um, I got to say, like,
0: yeah. The toothpaste and toothbrush being a high priority for her and soap. Mm -hmm. Because something she dwells on a little bit is the hygiene of the time, and which is just true. And it, I, I found that that's a texture. That's like part of the time to remember, yeah. you know, and the lack of medicine. That's a, kind of a big part of the book is they think of her as the, what one point Tom Whalen calls her a witch because right. she just has basic knowledge of like stuff. You know. <laughs> no, just
1: basic basic germ theory because, like, I mean, she yeah. was right when she talks about this. Germ theory does not exist at the time where where she is. Yeah. So, like, and and I think actually at one point she actually references that someone thought about you can get malaria from miasma or something. That was what people thought yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, so that and was there's a that lot was of bleeding by doctors, of course.
0: Yes. Uh, yes. So I think that she's smart to bring the toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, medicine, uh, medicine, like just some aspirin. She also brings sleeping pills. That I'm not sure. That seems like yeah. Uh, it seems like it could go wrong. That's like the thing. Like someone could overdose on them and you'd yeah. be in like big trouble or something. Because people would be like, how did this person die? And, you know, I well, although I guess a lot of people died mysteriously back then too. I think also if I knew the time period I was going to, I would bring clothes that matched it.
1: That was another curious decision Butler makes. Like she doesn't, she's never wearing the exact clothes and never changes into them either. It was it was an odd yeah. I I didn't quite understand that. I mean, I'm sure she did it for a reason, but it was strange. But actually, the thing that struck me as I was trying to answer this question is that you realize that a lot of the things that you value today would be useless in the past. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. They would be useless because, you know, you rely on networks or structures to help, you know, like a Mm -hmm. car. even if you could bring back a car – It doesn't matter if you don't have any gas or anything to to power. it. If you brought back a smartphone, it would serve very little purpose except to, you know, potentially show people pictures. Um, Oh, you know know
0: what? She doesn't bring back and she should have paper. Yeah. Because I was actually – I'm reading a novel about Bram Stoker and it involves a book – it gets into sort of how do you know when a uh, manuscript is authentic and i do love this about genre sometimes genre fiction does this better than regular fiction It is just mm-hmm. to get into detail about certain kind of things because it's important to the plot in a weird way right and mm-hmm. so there's a brief discussion of of the various stages of paper mm-hmm. like what kind when yeah. paper got refined in 18 yeah. uh, prior 1820 you're getting the paper is su- still super expensive For course. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and coarse. Like it's like precious.
1: Right. You know, no. In that sense, the pens, I think actually like, it, again, when I first read it, I was like, that's what you're bringing back. Really? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, that actually makes those oh. are simple machines. And she should
0: have brought the pens, but she should have brought paper too. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But anyway, Dan, yeah, you
1: enough. go. This is, I mean, I think I'm in agreement. She, Dana packs pretty smartly. I would have maybe brought, Vitamins, if I could have gotten my hands on them or antibiotics. I'm
0: I'm just going to get real, real here.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, For ladies. Yeah. I would have brought the things that ladies need because. That is entirely fair. This time period, pretty gross.
1: Ooh, okay. Let's just.
0: (laughs) Not a lot of options. I I won't be judgy. Not a lot of options, let's say. Right.
1: The the only last thing I would say (laughs) is the thing that. It's hard to explain. Like, I The the book opens with the fact that Dana's lost her arm and that the police were questioning Kevin but in the end let him go because she refused to press charges and said that nothing was happening. This might be the difference between 2021 and 1976 because if this were happening now, I'm assuming that if she was in the hospital, the doctors would have conducted a routine examination of her physically. And given how the book transpires, what they would have found... Mm. Would have demanded a much more serious investigation because it's not just that she would have lost her arm; there would have been scars from whipping. There would have been other things that would have shown up, and I I cannot think that you know Kevin would have gotten off quite as free as he did.
0: I agree. I do think that's a 1976 issue. Yeah, that might it
1: it does show that the times they're sort of like
0: we have like mandatory reporting now, right? Um, So signs of abuse would definitely cause for probably arrest and and some kind of detain detainment. Even though he's a he's apparently middle class white guy. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything left for the debris field. Again, I would say surprisingly quick and easy read given the subject matter. <laughs> it will stick with me. It will.
1: Yes. Um, I am very glad you rec I mean this sincerely I'm glad you suggested this because it would it was thought provoking in a number of ways ways that will keep me up at night, but nonetheless, productive ways.
0: Right. Yes. So, like I said, real change of pace coming up with Children of Men. Um, (laughs) Just very lighthearted romp. Uh, (laughs) And then the power, also lighthearted escapist reading.
1: But then the very scary Fantasy Island. Yeah. Well,
0: yes. Right. And then the very, very dark um, Fantasy Island. And also, uh, 28 Days Later, which i found pretty disturbing as a movie
1: oh i look forward to talking about
0: this i will be interested yes i'll be interested to talk about it uh if you would like access to episodes like this early can again support us on patreon at patreon.com space the nation and again you get early access you get access to discord and you you will be giving us money but it is not for us really it is for
1: karen and, yes. and, keeping, and also Karen's dog.
0: And yes, keeping Karen's uh, newish puppy in Kibble. I regret to say we got his name wrong. Yes, I must uh,
1: engage in a fact check. I believe last time we said that Arwen. Karen's dog name was Arwin. it is actually Alwyn. Yes. Uh, Space the Nation apologizes for the error.
0: And just uh, obviously, Karen likes corgis, so she gives them Welsh <laughs> names, yes. which is appropriate. And if you can't support us financially, and that is completely understandable, please just rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. That's super helpful. helps people find the show. And I'm consistently amused and maybe disappointed and saddened (laughs) when I tweet about our show and someone's like, how come I haven't heard about this show before? And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, (laughs) it's just me and Dan. We don't have a network behind us. So that's why you haven't heard of it. So tell your friends and family, rate and review. And until next time, Dan.
1: Keep this channel open for more.